Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Social Decision. Today's episode, we discuss the Communist Manifesto in the time of class struggle. This is a 90-minute discussion, and we invite you to call in at 347-857-1319. All right, so we're back here, back in yes, the house yes, yes. again. Definitely, and uh, missed last week, but that's okay. We're Gave me a little time to read the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> which is only uh, four to six pages. But, uh, but anyway, we're happy to be back, and I'm going to let people know off the top that uh, we're going to try to break this discussion up into two shows, if not three, if, we, if, if, if possible. I, I really don't want to rush into this, and we've had some um, some people tweeting and favoring uh, this, this discussion today. Um, and a couple of, as a matter of fact, somebody said they're really looking forward to the discussion. And uh, so I am too. I haven't read the Communist Manifesto in, in a long time, so I'll admit that. So it was good to go back and reread that. Um, in the, uh, in the, uh, on the Blog Talk page, you can go there and see a link. There's a link to a PDF version of the Communist Manifesto that you can download. But, you know, you can, you can just do a Google search and, you can, you know, you can readily find it. And actually um, – as I was kind of doing a little bit of preparation for this show, I found that there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of little summaries of the Communist Manifesto. I mean, and not really bad things, not really bad summaries, because I, I, I would imagine that this uh, Communist Manifesto, at least the document was talked about in, you know, the universal level, maybe also in high school level. I remember my daughter talked about, uh, you know, having a class in which, uh, 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 the professor uh, had them read Communist Manifesto or tried to get them to read Communist Manifesto. And I can see why now that uh, a young generation will have a very difficult time with this, with this pamphlet. But, again, there's a lot of information out there about it, and I think that it, even though it was written in the 1850s, it still has um, some pertinence to, to the day, even though we know it, it could certainly be updated. Uh, but so we want to we want to take our time and go through it. So hopefully, Carl, we're going to try to stay on the first section, maybe the first the first yeah, two sections, yeah. and not go to the third. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, so definitely. Why don't you give us, Carl? Give us a little bit of background on the Common Manifesto in terms of you know like why it was written, what what yeah, social movement came out of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so just to give uh, everybody a context. Um, uh, because there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about the Communist Manifesto. One book I strongly suggest people to read is by Harold J. Lansky, L-A-S-K-I, and he wrote um, the introduction about the history and, and every aspect of about the Communist Manifesto. In fact, it's, in, in my opinion, it's one of the best um, 
introduction on the Communist Manifesto that really explains the history and origin. So um, the, the origin of the Communist Manifesto goes back to the, the uh, left organizations that existed prior to the publication of the Communist Manifesto, um, you know, in 1840, I think it's 1848 um, or 1847, 48. So um, what um, I'm going to, the first organization, which was called the Society of Exile, and these were mainly Ger- German um, uh, Republicans that wanted to um, uh, overthrow the feudal monarchy of Germany and build a republic that had free press, free speech, and so forth. And they were more of a secret society, a group of folks that Engels was uh, primarily a part of. Marx wasn't so much necessarily connected with them, but a lot of the cats that were part of that group um, were run out of Germany. Um, They ended up in Brussels, Paris, and um, Great Britain at the time. And um, there was a lot of revolutionary activities that was happening in France at that time in eighteen in the eighteen forties and uh, most particularly at this time it was in eighteen thirty nine, eighteen thirty eight and eighteen thirty nine. Um they cr- they decided to create another organization called the League of Dress of Just. A League of Just, J U S T. And uh in eighteen thirty nine. It was it was it was started by this um German tailor, uh, William Wilhelm Willing, uh, Wilton, Willing, I think it is, and he's a um, he was a follower of Robert Owen and the Blanky um, Society. Uh, Blanky, it was a he was a, a French uh, revolutionary in France, um, very well known. I mean, this cat was like everybody knew about him. He was part of, that later led to the Paris Commune and everything, but. Um, Blakey believed uh, uh, in what it was called, uh, we need to have a secret society of, of dedicated lumpen proletarians that will secretly in small numbers overthrow um, uh, France, uh, a feudal monarchy, and bring about a, you know, a republic, um, uh, or, uh, in his mind, more of a socialist um, uh, socialist society. Um, so he, he, they, that was the group. It was so Wilhelm uh, Engels, Marx, and all those guys were a part of that uh, League of Just, um, but it, it, that didn't stay together because uh, Wilhelm went off on his tangent on on a number of different stuff, and um, uh, particularly got caught up in Blakey stuff and 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 other folks, and uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of stress on people. Um, created another organization called the Communist League in the summer of 1847. So they didn't want to create an organization that was going to secretly overthrow, you know, the different monarchies and feudal monarchies, but it was more or less a, a correspondence uh, um, a group, uh, committees, uh, one in Paris, one in Great Britain, one in, um, in Germany, um, Brussels, and different places, and they would correspond, talk about what's going on and things like that. Um, they had um, the first conference um, where all of them came together, and it was very successful. Marx didn't attend. Um, the second conference, he did attend. And they um, at this conference, um, Engels came with a, 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 a list of ideas that um, called the communist catechism. Um, what is communism? You know, what is it all about? And trying to 
define it for people because it was this group was relatively young and trying to define that. Um, at that at that um, Congress or uh, uh, conference, the second conference um, that Marx was at, he, um, Marx was you know he just rattled this stuff off the top of his head. He knew about all this stuff, and um, they de- they decided to have him um, prepare or write this document. And uh, at the t- um, and since Marx didn't particularly like the idea of Engels calling it communist catechism. Engels came up, well, what about Communist Manifesto? And Marx liked that and really pushed that. And that became, you know, the, the, the title of, the, of this document that was going to be popular for the average working person, the average person. It wasn't going to be an intellectual piece. It was going to be something that people could understand. It wasn't going to be all this religious stuff and spiritual stuff. And it wasn't going to be none of this artsy stuff either um, that was um, present at the time of the, a lot of those writings. And uh, uh, the, the Central Committee um, um, uh, said, okay, Marx, you go write this. And it took him um, six to seven weeks. And they were getting concerned because they had given him drafts from Schepner and Mole and the, um, uh, one of the periodical and some, you know, some things from the, the League of Justice. And they were like, hey, um, you know, Schepner, Bauer, and Mole was like, hey, what's wrong with this cat? He's not, you know... I thought this was only going to take a week or two. Here, there's six, seven weeks, and we still don't have this thing. And if you don't have it by Tuesday, we're going to send it to somebody else. So he finally got it done uh, and, and submitted it, and it became um, the document as we know it, um, pamphlet as we know it worldwide. It's been translated in just about every language. Um, uh, it, it became a very powerful um, pamphlet around the world. When it first came out, um, basically no one knew about it. Um, it was kind of like a pamphlet that came out, and the group kind of like fell apart. And the Paris commuting, I mean, other events, the 1848 uh, revolution was popping off all over the place. And um, people were just, it was like, okay, yeah, well, we heard about these guys, but, you know, you know, we, we never seen the, 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 um, uh, the, the pamphlet. It wasn't until uh, a group of individuals began to um, really start translating it into the various countries. Zizorlish, um, I think it's, if I pronounce it right, Russian, um, who translated it into Russian, and another person uh, translated it into um, French that uh, later. Um, was passed around just before the Paris Commune. It was uh, translated um, um, into German and then finally into English. And then um, it became um, uh, most popular during the time of the the German uh, Social Democratic Party came into existence where Karl Koski and those guys had a printing press, and these guys were just pumping out this thing. And they were pumping out many different um, uh version in terms of translation around the world of the Communist Manifesto, and um, it, was, it was getting out. And, but it really established itself as a worldwide um, pamphlet when um, the Bolshevik Revolution occurred. And when the Bolshevik Revolution happened, it was like, that was it. It went to every corner of, you know, from Africa to India to 
China to, I mean, it, 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 everywhere, South America, all over around the world, everyone wanted to get a copy of the Communist Manifesto and read this particular pamphlet that gave rise to this Marxist movement and ultimately the success of the uh, Bolshevik um, revolution in, uh, you know, October um, 1917. So it was this development in history that, you know, initially wasn't well known, uh, wasn't well read, um, uh, was almost forgotten. Um, it was really Engels kind of like kept referring back to it often um, and gave impetus to uh, the German um, Social Democratic Party to, you know, republish this stuff. Let's get this stuff. Let's get, you know, Marx's work out. So principally, this is Marx's work, more take, using Engels and and Bauer and other people, Boll and other people's um, work and, and, and translating it in a way and writing it in a way that using his uh, Hegelian dialectics, using his um, historical materialist approach, using uh, economics, um, um, and, com- and combining the sharp tongue of agitation, um, uh, incorporated all of that into this small little pamphlet. Yeah, and that, you know, one of the things is, nothing, thank you, Carl, for that, for that background. Um, it, it's important to, when, when you read a book, when you, not a book, but a pamphlet, which is only about 46 pages, at least the one that I have, so it's you know, like 50 pages long. Um, it can be read in an evening, but, you know, you can take, maybe take you long in terms of studying it. But it's important to understand the context in which it came out of um, and not just look at it in terms of, you know, most people think, well, that's a communist text. You know, that, that's, that doesn't really even get to understanding what this, why this uh, particular pamphlet and, and manifesto became so popular. So, so you know, understanding that particular context. The one of the reasons why that we go back, one of the reasons why that we, you know, chose to do this is because we know that this is contentious times in terms of, you know, the, 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 uh, the notion of socialism and communism has always been thoroughly misunderstood. Um, it, is, it has been one, it's been an ideology, which when we say an ideology, that is a worldview, a way of looking at economic and political conditions. Um, it has been contentious with the bourgeois class, that is, you know, land-owning, profit-owning kind of uh, 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 class ideology. They don't want you to engage in that, and and at the same time, they don't want you think they don't want you to have that that ideology. They want you to have this notion of individualism, you know, absolute private property, uh, notion of uh, of, a, of a of a of a of a free market uh, kind of system. So to go back to something a classical work like this, but to me, what what struck me coming back and rereading it is how much of it is, is pertinent to, to even to this day, even though there are a lot of things that it, you know, it couldn't have talked about that are happening today because those things were not happening back at that time. But let's go, we, we're going to go into the first um, chapter of it, the first section, and it's talking about which is headed bourgeoisie and the proletarian. And, and the well, first but, but before, is, before you start there, I think the intro um, where 
speaks to it. And I think most people have heard the specter that is haunting Europe, the yeah, specter of communism. Yeah. Whereas today we mm-hmm. would say the specter that is hunting, haunting the world yeah. is the specter of communism. So if we were to update that, um, and, and, the, and, he, and the reason why you put it in that context is that he says, the next line says, all the power of old Europe has entered into a holy alliance to excise the, spe- the specter. We have a holy alliance today of all the capitalists from around the world with one aim to defeat the notion of what what Jody did, uh, Dean talked about the the passion the the yearning for a communist type of society so whether you're in Russia China United States Great Britain France India South Africa wherever you are in around the world Peru you know um Australia to the North Pole, all of them are bent on making sure that communism, as it as, as he's going to talk about in the first chapter, is basically um, the enemy, and, 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 and enemy of the capitalist system. And they know that. They clearly know that. They feel that in their bone. That is the most threatening thing to them, and that is why it's called the, um, you know, the haunting specter of the world. And today, when he wrote it, it was with Europe uh, in mind from a more Eurocentric point of view, but today it's a worldwide um, phenomenon. Right, and, he, and, and that, according to, to what I'm looking at right here, that's the, what you just explained is the preface to the, night, to the 1888 edition of it. So that was, uh, by then it was edited again by Frederick Engels. So I, I, I would imagine this went through a couple of additions there, but you're definitely correct. One, one of the things, though, Carl, and I really want to kind of, you know, say this before people are like, you know, cut us off right now. Ooh, communism. I, I, I want to I talk about, as we get through this, through this pamphlet, why some people may have this kind of, you know, not, we know why the bourgeoisie don't want to talk about communism. We, we understand that, okay? But why is it that people have this kind of knee-jerk re- reaction to the concept of communism and and what it and what it talk, what it entails, I, I I can understand why people do have it, and and so as we as we work through this 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 uh, this pamphlet, I, I want to come back and talk about some of those some of those concerns people have, and and misconceptions they have because I you know it's it's laden with all kind of um, it's been all kind of anti propaganda, uh, uh, anti uh, anti communist propaganda. That we've been dealing with definitely since the 1950s with the McCarthy era up until this day, um, and and we only saw it with the recent uh, Bernie uh, uh, campaign that that uh, you know the, the the word socialism just being you know put out there in kind of a in a kind of a popular media if you will a mass media, so that that only happened in the last you know the last few years, and but yet we've been struggling with this. It's been a continuous struggle throughout the world, and by right it should be, because basically when you have this pamphlet, it talks about in the first, after that preface that uh, Carl alludes to, it says the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. Now, you can, you can be definitely against what communism or Karl Marx is all about, but it is a fact that particularly since 
the uh, industrial industrial age, when we're moving out of agrarian and feudalistic type of, uh, well, even in the feudalistic time, there's been a struggle of a class struggle. There's been this struggle of those who own property, who own means of production, and those who work. And what I contend makes the Communist Manifesto so popular, you know, that this was the, the one of the first, what it, what it did was influence a worker's consciousness, right? Now, we're, certainly there was a worker's consciousness before the manifesto was written because people, there were, the, the proletariat were asking uh, Marx and Engels to write this pamphlet. So, you, so obviously there was uh, some working class consciousness even before this pamphlet came about. But the fact of it is is that here you have the working class become conscious of itself as workers, right? And I contend today, or since, you know, particularly in the last, I don't know, 50, maybe 80 years, the working class has, begin to, has, has, begin, has lost a consciousness of itself, right? So now it gets turned around that, that the, workers, the workers see their, their interests as the same as the bourgeoisie, and the capitalists, so that they so they don't no longer see that they're in this kind of class struggle, and so this is the difference between when this pamphlet came out, is that you had the workers being conscious of themselves as workers, knowing and understanding they're being exploited as workers, and they clearly understood where the exploitation came from. So this is what this short pamphlet, this pamphlet, by no means is going to help you to understand this class struggle enough. I mean, it, it gives a, it's, it's, it's a manifesto. It's very succinct. It has a particular point. It says a manifesto is a, is a public declaration, if you will. It's a public declaration that says, this is what, this is our vision. This is what we see. This is how things should change. This is what we demand, right? So it's the same thing that we say in this, in this, this podcast. We say, here we have a particular vision. We have a vision for something different. And uh, this comment manifesto is a vision, if you will, but first it explains the problem. And the problem still exists to this day, that we are existing in class struggle. So that second paragraph starts out, it says, Freeman and slave, um, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, even a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Listen, we are still in that fight right now. This is the, these are the struggles that we see happening everywhere that capitalism exists. These struggles, the, the working class will not lay down and just accept that, that capitalism is okay, that the working conditions of, of, of working class people is okay. Uh, they're not going to do that. Now, they may get lulled to sleep, right? They might begin to get, they might get persuaded to see their uh, reality is the same as capitalism. But it's some, the, the conditions of capitalism are going to always reawaken. And that's the reason why, even to this day, you have a Bernie Sanders and you have this class struggle that exists. So that's the reason why we say if you're going to criticize communism or if you want to know 
what communism is all about. You owe it to yourself to just go to this work, go to this pamphlet, and begin to see. It's just a classic pamphlet, and go see what it originally said. Um, right. The other, Carl, the other thing, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm just clarify for people too why this this was the opening line versus you know let's overthrow a capitalist system. It was important to start with a framework as to mm-hmm. who are the the, the the largest contending power or classes that bring about fundamental change at different periods. So classes was not Marx didn't make that up. He didn't come up with that idea. Right. That's that was right. around before him. Um, but what he did was this pamphlet says, I'm going to tell you. Historically, there's been these two clashes of cl- of, of, of classes, um, you know, the lord and the serf, um, the, the, the guild master and the journeyman, the freeman and the slave, um, uh, or the slave master. So there's been these two clashes, and today the, uh, the clash is uh, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So he says, I want you to look at these two, and I'm going to... And we're gonna, and in, and in this first chapter, he's gonna take you through both the history and the clash. That and when he says it is both hidden and sometimes open fights. So even though you know you may not see people out in the street demonstrating this, or people struggle on many different levels. And so they may you know decide not to go to work today, or you know muck up the system today, or whatever. Um, so, so there's these two clashes. So the, 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 the manifesto is talking about these two, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, where they came from, what they're about, what their strength and weaknesses, and what, the, and what inevitably is going to take to resolve these two major you know, opposites that are interconnected to each other. To re- to resolve to bring about a a communist society, so that's that's why he opens with those two versus just opening with you know just throw the bums out kind of thing. Um, so it's a, well, and, it's a but, very but, powerful one, one opening. Of the things, one, one of the things that we be clear too is let's not forget now at this time before this before this pamphlet was written, you know before even Karl Marx was thought about you have yeah Western Europe and colonialism. So basically, what you saw is one, you had parts of Western Europe coming out of feudalism, all these monarchies and stuff like that, coming out, expanding into other parts of the world to find resources, to find new land to conquer, to find even more subject people, right? So, so be so be clear that this 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 thing you, that that you that you you support capitalism and all that, people who support capitalism. Be clear that this was a, a, a this kind of system was very violent. It was based upon the enslavement of people, the subjugation of other people's land and resources, right? And then there was there was serious strife within Europe itself, all right? Because in that in that you know he goes on the second page or so, or a little bit down, he said the mo- the modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins a feudal society has not done away with the class antagonism. So you had class antagonism under the feudal society, and that was, like, real clear to see. I mean, you had the monarchy fucking absorb everything, right? And so, every, so every, all the, 
the labor and the, in, in, in some places where they had taxes went toward this monarchy. And it, and, and it had a huge fucking army. It had a, a army to protect itself from the peasant class and the agrarian class. Um, and you had the artisans. The artisans back then were the people and, and the craftspeople who were, who built, you know, you know, like they uh, created shoes and they, you know, they, they, and, and clothing. Uh, they may build things. They had, you know, people had skills. But by and large, it was a feudal class that profited hugely. And, 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 if, and, and if it was not only the struggle, say, in Western Europe, but then they went outside their land and went out other places in order to subject, subjugate people. This is how vicious the, bourgeois, the, the, the monarchy going into the bourgeois class, this is how vicious uh, they have been for a long, long time. So a lot of people, don't, they, don't, they don't want to think about that, but we know we learned that in high school and, and in public college. You, you know that is clear. That's undeniable. So here you have this bourgeois class coming out of feudalism, and it's bringing some of the same kind of ideological worldview with it that this class says, well, we want to, we want to, we want to open up we want to be able to have certain rights that we're not getting under feudalism, right? Because people know that they're, they're, you know, they're producing things. They want to be able to produce things and make money off of it. And the, and the feudal, the monarchy shouldn't be able to be the only ones who are going to benefit from that. But yet and still, they're keeping a class distinction there. And they also, the bourgeois class, see some people as expendable, see some people as um, um, should be subjugated while other people should be able to have as much as they want. So this is kind of the ideological viewpoint that existed then and it still exists today. And that's the reason why you still have another reason why you still have this, this oppression, if you will, this, this class antagonism. Uh, right. Those who that you were. Go ahead, Carl. No, I was just going to uh, reemphasize your point too, that, uh, as you described, when the bourgeoisie, and he talks about the rise of the uh, the bourgeoisie who comes from the, um, you know, the charter bourgeoisie of the earliest towns. They were like, um, you know, small shops that ran um, little um, artisan shops that produced things. Um, what he... What he is basically saying is that when the bourgeoisie came and said they were revolutionaries and they overthrow the few, we're going to bring about freedom and uh, liberty and equality, they were only talking about themselves. So exactly. they, basically re, uh, they basically created a new distinct uh, uh, type of oppression um, racial oppression of, in terms of racial slavery that uh, that emerged, um, and, uh, that emerged with the rise of the bourgeoisie, um, uh, with the the rise of the exploited nature of, of, of workers. All of that they created a whole new oppressive system, um, both exploited in terms of uh, of wealth and also a new state. Uh, a repressive system. They don't use 
feudal knights. They used uh, what you call the regular army in the United States. We call the Marines and the the Air Force and the Army, uh, coupled with your National Guard and your police and your you know paramilitary forces. So they 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 created a whole new um, apparatus, uh, repressive apparatus, and that's what he speaks of. And the other thing in terms of it, that they create these new things, even though they talk about, you know, we we want freedom for everybody. What they're talking about, freedom for private property to make some money. That's all they're talking about. They ain't talking about uh, freeing you from oppression. In fact, they re-oppress you in the most higher and, and, and uh, most oppressive levels. So that's one. Two, um, when they speak of of their form of of existence of capitalism and the bourgeois, they give you the the notion that they've always been bourgeoisies. They've always been capitalists. Everybody always wanted to make money. That from the beginning of the Cro-Magnon man, he wanted to make some bucks. So not knowing that this is a this came out of another society, that this is new. This didn't always been. So the notion that you know even the most backward Cro-Magnon man who was you know. Chipping at in, in, in the dark corners, or the end of the all man was a capitalist. That notion does not exist. It's, it's, this is a historical phenomenon, and he wanted to situate this this uh, capitalist uh, bourgeoisie society in a historical context, and that's that's what he was doing here. Now, would would you contend? And I know this is kind of getting a little bit off, not too much off the book, but he doesn't. I don't know if he talks about it so much in his pamphlet, but um, that in in this kind of, you know, change from means of production, if you will, Marx, would, Marx did contend that the kind of the capitalist, the development of capitalism was almost inevitable or necessary in order to move forward uh, in terms of increasing you know, higher forms of Production, the management of resources, the mat well, so, so, well, the exploitation of resources, but somewhat the the management and higher production of resources, particularly as we begin to see, uh, you know, population growth, as we begin to see um, a movement away from from agricultural based societies to more industrialized societies. I mean, there was we have to admit there's some benefit. In that movement, but that doesn't necessarily right. mean right. that it had to be that it had to be capitalist. But because of some of our arrangements, social relationships, it's sad that it, it, we could have done that in a in a more collective way, but we did not do it for various reasons. But yet we do have to move toward more higher forms of production. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it. Basically, he does talk about that. What he does, he tries to point out that, you know, remember, uh, capitalism was as much as we're going to talk about capitalism and we're going to talk about the bourgeoisie uh, quite a bit. But, you know, he tries to give them their props. And and he Mm -hmm. talks about them in the sense that he said, listen, whereas before in an agricultural-based society, most people didn't know that other people lived someplace else and around the world. There was a whole new um, community of people halfway around the world. You know, um, now that we're connected, the 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 the, the, 
the development and creation of the steam engine and the uh, you know the the, tr- the train the ma- mass production of goods that you know artisans who can only produce so much the explosive what he, what he uh, of communication and navigation to travel all over the world and, and take vast wealth of resources from around the world um, to creating the cosmopolitan areas of size unparalleled that that did not exist before, you know, the electric telegraph, he talks about the steam navigation. I mean, he, he gives them the chemistry, the science, the, the, he gives them their props, but he says their props comes with a lot. It comes with the death in of itself. It cannot yeah. develop unless it does massive destruction, increase massive death. Um, in his effort to colonize the world, um, to create more markets, it just it impoverished the entire Chinese community in India. It dumped so much uh, cotton in the world. It 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 it, it massively depopulated Africa when it basically enslaved and, and brought them to the New World. I mean, it did so much death and destruction and oppression in the process of this great wealth is where he talks about they built buildings and t- and, and and towers and marvels uh, much larger and and and, and more uh, wondrous than the you know the uh, the pyramids and all the other ancient societies have been able to produce that it's just a past all of that, um, and today we would talk about it. We have traveled to the moon, and, and we have flown things to Mars. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, done heart-to-heart transplant. We have done many different wonders of this constant revolutionary revolution of production, but comes with it a huge and massive um, destruction and death in the process, and that is what he talks about the dialectics that they're interconnected. You cannot talk about the nice things of, of, of capitalist development without talking about his massive destruction and death that it has caused for 500 years. Um, and um, so that is, that is the power of, 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 of this, the Communist Manifesto, is the ability to articulate both of those two pieces happening um, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and that dialectic we talked about. We, uh, well, listen, we've done a show on dialectical materialism. Just go to, just Google that in uh, on Blog Talk. Um, you can you can find it there. It was one that we did early on in the when we first started, and uh, and that is a something that, again, if you if you understand something about dialectical materialism, you can really understand, you can better understand this 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 pamphlet more so. But yeah, Carl made a good point: is that that, that this advancement that we have comes at a price. So it's a dialectical problem. There's this good thing that happens. You know, here we, t- we are solving particular kind of mass kind of problems. You know, we're increasing production, fitting the needs of people that, that these have, but it comes at the expense of people at the same time, you see. And so this is the struggle that we, this is what I see is the problem that we have to awaken to. You know, we know that in particularly in the time when we're looking in a, in a kind of carbon-based Kind of environment now. We live, we live in a carbon-based world, and, and 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 the things that we look at as luxuries, the things that we look at and, and, as, as that, that makes things more leisurely and convenient, um, that's that's coming at a serious price. 
and we need to really waken up to that. If, if we can't do it in terms of if we, if, if we don't respect one another enough to do it, you better be clear about the, about the environment because the environment don't give a fuck what you think, right? If you, if you fuck with that, right, then it's going to fuck with you, all right? That's what it's going to do. So when you live in a kind of this capitalism is, is, is heavily dependent upon this carbon-based kind of, uh, uh, of, of industry that uh, is having serious problems. So, so we look at it from an environmental problem thing, and we look at it from a humanistic thing. Now, the humanistic thing, a lot of people just don't give a fuck. You know, I'm just like, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to make as much money as I can, and woe to you if you can't do it. So, so that's not, maybe for a lot of people, that's not going to be the thing that the, the, thing that the concern that uh, is going to change things. But certainly the environment, um, uh, the climate change has a, a tremendous effect. Now, of course, Mark, I'm not sure how much he knew about that at the time, but, uh, but certainly it is, is cluster clear today. Let's go back on the, in, to, the se- to the section one again. He goes oh, on I was gonna, I, I was I was going to cover oh, another part in section one. Um, it's a couple of pages. Yeah, no, okay. we'll pages forward. One. So just um, mm-hmm. move forward a little bit. There's a and I, I don't know where it is, but it's, it talks about the bourgeoisie. Who are these people? Mm-hmm. He says yeah. the bourgeoisie historically has played a most revolutionary part. That's what we we're talking about. Where they mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about their role against the feudal lords and how oppressive it was. But then he goes on and says, let me tell you about these people. He says, the bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. wherever it has got the upper hand, has put it into all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bow man to his natural superior. And it has left no necklace, no other neck, necklace between man and man than the naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. Yep. The only relationship you have to each other is who got the money and who don't. It's the it's the Donald Trump phenomena. It's like Donald mm-hmm. Trump don't recognize you unless you have money. And and he basic they inculcate as a ruling ideology that you have no other relationship. You're not a a good father unless you bring home the bacon. It goes on and says it has drowned the most heavily ecstasies of religious favor of chalice enthusiasm and Philistine cynicism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal wealth into exchange value and in place of a numberless indefensible charter freedom has set up that single unconscionable freedom. Free trade. In a word, for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusion, it has substituted naked, shameless direct and brutal exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of it its halo of every occupation here to honor and looked up to with reverence and awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into a paid wage labor. So it's, it talks about how it's like a virus. It's a disease that just infects everything in this process for the sole and only purpose that is to look at you in, in in terms of what cash relationship you are. Measure up, not by your humanistic value, but how much you are worth in terms of can you bring 
bring home the bacon. Are you a billion-dollar man or a million-dollar woman? It, it, it looks at you in a much different context. It sees religion in the terms of how much it, it can promise you wealth and billions and so forth. Everything is tied to that. It, 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 it basically subordinated every single moral humanistic value in, in terms of its own capitalistic bourgeois uh, connections and relationship. It distorts it. It just it warps it. It it, it it's insidious. It's like a a, a a a poison that that permeates all throughout the entire society for the sole and only purpose. How can I make the prophet my God? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and that's the thing, Carl. And we, and we talked about this numerous times on the show. Is that what? Not only are the bourgeois, not only are the proletariat and working class the oppressed, non-proletariat and the bourgeoisie, we're all in this kind of money exchange, right? In that everything that we do has to have a dollar sign to it. Everything, everything, and this is what this is what cheapens to a lot of extent our contributions to to humanity, if you will. It cheapens it because if I may, I might, you know, there, there are things that people are going to do regardless. You know, we, we're, we're, we're evolutionary beings. We're, you know, we're going to survive. Evolution is about survival. All, you know, human, all animals do that. All organic, uh, 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 um, you know, cells do that. People, you know, survive. It's about survival. We're going to do that naturally. That, that's something that we're going to do. Human beings happen to be ones that have a consciousness. We're kind of at the top of the of the chain there, if you will, but yet we we cheapen our existence by putting a dot by putting a money and profit as a part of everything. So we have to constantly engage in that, whether we want to or not, right? Um, and I and I get reminded of that. The more, I think the biggest reminder of that is, you know, it's when you look at um, the the digital age, particularly the internet and things of that sort. Um, this this notion that on a computer, and Paul, there's a, a scholar named Paul Mason who's written a book about post-capitalism. And, and he, and he, and he uh, talked about one of his lectures. He said, you know, the, on, on, the, on the computer there's a thing called Command-C, copy, Command-C, and Command-V, you paste it. That right, that, I agree with him. This notion, is that, that notion of, of being able to copy something and paste something, is going to be a serious challenge, and it is a serious challenge, to capitalism. Because how, why so? Because we can produce things. There's, we see this on, on the Internet all the time. We see it in Wikipedia, for example. People, people are sharing, you know, knowledge, sharing resources through the Internet, right? And every, all you have to do, if you want to get that, all you got to do is consume that knowledge, right? It doesn't cost you a dime. All you have to do is... Um, Copy and paste it if you want to, you know. So, like, same thing, say, for music, for example. That's why the music industry has serious problems. Because here, you know, you have this music. Once it gets online, all people got to do is download it, and they can play it, right? And so and that is, there's no monetary exchange there. So they have to figure out, well, how can we control this property, this intellectual property, this, 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 uh, this artistic property? How can we, how can we control it? So this is what Apple does. Apple will take some of the, you know, the most classic songs by the Beatles, or even now, I think they got Prince's collection. Now, these, these songs 
have been out there for a long, long time. You know, and Prince made money, the Beatles made money. But now here's Apple saying, well, goddamn, we didn't produce the stuff, but fuck, how can we make some more money off of it? You know, it's been, you know, it, it can easily be distributed with, no, with, with hardly no cost in terms of with very little cost, we could have everybody listening to music all over the world, free, right, with very little cost. But here's the bourgeoisie saying, no, we got to take this art and we got to make money off of it, right? right. You, got a, a, you got a beautiful uh, Beyonce, a beautiful singer, right, very talented singer, but yet she has to constantly find ways to market herself, to market her brand in order to make more and more money. And then the people who are tied to her, you know, the, the, the investors that are tied to her, the, all the products that are tied to her, they also have to be tied to this thing so they also can make money. So, so it's like the bank saying that the banks are there too big to fail because they understand that if they fail, there's a ripple effect throughout the uh, society, throughout the world. What's well, the same thing? If we don't, we, we, we're so entrenched to this monetary for-profit type of economy that once it fails, the economy fails. So when you had Bush back in 2011, said, look, you know, go out and buy stuff. God damn it. I mean, I know we just got attacked, but go out and buy shit. We need you to keep buying. And this is what you get hit on every day. That's the reason why you have a multi-billion dollar advertising industry is to keep people to go out and keep buying shit in order to keep this is how dependent we are. And we all we all are dependent upon it. We all are doing that. But it goes back to that concept with the bourgeoisie class is that it it has to keep revolutionizing things in order to get people to buy more and more shit. You see what I'm saying? In order to be able to make more and more profit, it has to keep revolutionizing things. And that's the reason why it has in that way been, it seems to be a very, um, a, uh, a very useful or very uh, important economic political system because, wow, look at all the things that have come out of capitalism, you know, because there's a lot of drive to revolutionize, to make the new phones, to make these new different things that people want and need. There's a constant thing. We definitely understand that. I definitely get that. But again, we come back to, though, there is a price to be paid for that. You see my point? There's a price to be paid when it's, it's not, it's not, one more point, but it's, it's not driven by need and necessity, but, but driven by something much more uh, 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 subjective, that is profit, right, and accumulation, right. wealth accumulation. Right. So if we, if we did it, if we did it, say, well, we're going to produce things based upon what we need, right, and based on what's going to help us live, to be, live better and live better together, right, then our, our, our growth would be much, much slower. And what's the problem with that? Where in the fuck are we going? We're not going nowhere. We're not, we're not getting off this planet anytime soon. I mean, it's gonna, I mean, if we could ever get off the planet, you know, it would be hundreds of years from here. So we're not going to get off the planet in a way that, to, in terms of colonizing some other planet right now. That's not going to happen anytime soon. So where, why are we such in a hurry to, to, to always increase production? You know, people, capitalists always complain, you know, the production level, you know, Trump talked about the production level is really right. low. Well, right. well, what the fuck? I mean, why, why has it got to be high? It only has to be high because, motherfucker, you want to make more money. That's the reason why it has to be high. 
I want to accumulate more and more and more wealth, right? So the production needs to go up and up and up. Not that we need all this shit that we're putting, that we're producing. We do need certain things now a lot more because now we have huge population growth. We have a, 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 technolo- a, a industrial technological society. We are vastly dependent upon this kind of level of production. So I, I definitely get it now why that, that, that production is, it needs to be ramped ratcheted up. But at the same time, uh, we don't have to keep going at the pace we're doing. We don't have to do that. We're not going to lose anything by not doing it. We can do it more scientifically. Go ahead. I'm, I'm talking to Right. You. No, it's, it's a good point because that's the, it's the argument, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the arguments that are raised um, uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the tax on uh, – you know the Communist Manifesto and communism. Um, the the one thing uh, you you made a really good point because oftentimes people say, well, you know, communism don't in, innovate; it doesn't do no innovation. Well, capitalism doesn't have to do innovation; it is forced to do innovation. And the reason why it's forced to innovate is because it just can't simply create a phone or an iPhone. It has to create many iterations of iPhones. So it just didn't create one PC. It had to create many, you know, you want a clear through, beautiful, shape-looking PC. That's what Apple was good at. Apple knew you just didn't want a Apple computer. You want the nice, shiny thing, the next latest shiny thing to, to purchase from them. So uh, Steve Jobs understood that very well about how capitalism is constantly innovating not for the purpose of innovating, but for the purpose of for you to buy so they can make profit. The, 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 the net result of that, the negative results of that, in, in, uh, in, a, um, art, in the Atlantic article in uh, June 2012, noted that there was 2.6 trillion pounds of garbage, world garbage. And it says that is the weight of about 6,000 Empire State Building. That's how much garbage we produce because we're constantly innovating and producing. So when um, uh, Henry Ford made the Model T, people loved the Model T. Everybody had the Model T. They were bought on credit. But when when, when people, um, uh, uh, you know, said, okay, we'll just fix the Model T, and no one was buying, he, he went in a state of economic um, a crisis, uh, lots of pr- uh, profits, he came out with the new uh, Ford Motor Car uh, in order to, you know, increase production and increase profit. Again, that's what t- that. So the notion that capitalism is the only thing that innovates, it is forced to innovate because it has to make more pro- profit. You can innovate for needs if there's a need for, you know. Uh, saving someone's life, you're going to innovate. If you're going to need to save the planet, you're going to innovate. If you're going to need to uh, to provide a lifestyle for people who halfway around the world so they can live a, a decent life and sustainable life, you're going to innovate. You're going to innovate for need versus for the innovate for profit. That distinction um, has to be made clear. And what happens, we marvel at what, you know, capitalism does and produces um, in terms of shiny stuff and big things and, you know, huge things and destructive things, not knowing that all of that is built around how we're going to make some money. 
Right, and you know, and, and on page seven, he even back then he, he understood suddenly what we were going through today. That that uh, intellectual, I just lost the page here. Dang it! He said the intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. He, you know, and it's, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, when you have what is it called when the back in the early days when computers when people were you know kind of sharing code and sharing what was that called? Oh, uh, shareware. Yeah, yeah, share and open source. I mean, because you know, back then people were just like, you know, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create this, this thing. They're gonna do something, and I'm gonna put it out there for everybody else to use, right? And so you just, you know, you got passed around. I mean, the whole Linux system was kind yeah, of, you know, based on a, a, open source, right? And so, and and open it runs source. a lot of stuff that's, that's even today. I mean, I don't know all the technical sides of it, but I mean, that's that's the gist of it. So, 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 but 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 now, but if you're in a bourgeois kind of a, a, arrangement here. That can't last long. That can't last long because if you have this, if, if things, under bourgeoisie, things can't be free, even though they may want to be free, right? People may have no problem saying, you know, yeah, I'm creating this code. I mean, you, can, you, know, you know, I'm creating this thing. You can, you can share it. You can have it. No problem. No big thing. But Calvin said, oh, no, wait a minute. No, we can't do that. Okay? Because if you do that, then I can't get my cut. Right. right. It's the same thing about thing about 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 nations. You know, between nations, we all every nation has resources that each other needs. There, there's not one nation that can be can totally survive. You know, you know, at least effectively without having resources from another 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 place. Right. So here's here's you know, Marx is saying, well, look, wait a minute. No, we need to get rid of this this na- this this nation this national rift. You know, bourgeois societies. Create these na- these national borders. They create nationalism because again, it's another way of saying, "Hey, I got some resources, motherfucker, and if you don't act right, right, you can't have my shit on my land because uh, you know because you can use it to pay me a lot of money. I'm going to control some of you in order to get it." And the United States has been playing that for ye- for for hundreds of years, right? It's, so this notion that he, he was even getting to that point of saying, "Look." We know only that the bourgeois society is a problem, but in the way that it's, it's, that it's built relationships between nations, between individuals, between families, uh, between the sexes, is a particular problem. And like Carl talked about, that violence, well, it, it, it goes through all these institutions that we, we so value, and, and it's tearing us apart. It's tearing us apart because our main focus is about how we're going to economically survive to the next day. And, and for some people, not only economically survive, but just being able to survive in terms of getting a decent meal, right? A lot of people, it's an economic thing. You know, you, 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 got, you got some money, you got to figure out well, how you're going to make that money stretch, how you're going to be able to make it buy things. And for the most part, you're buying from, from things. Ultimately, it's people who own stuff and people who don't own stuff. Most of this country don't own, individuals in this country don't own property. They don't. More people have to rent, right? And, and, and until right. you pay off your mortgage, you don't own your home until you pay off your mortgage. And most people spend most of their lives trying to pay off their mortgage, right? So there are people who own property, who own uh, land, right, in which you have to pay on. And that's how you get it continuously exploited every day. You see what I'm saying? So this is what Mark, back, back, particularly back then uh, in Marx's time, that whole property thing was, was seriously 
like entrenched, man. I mean, he was seriously entrenched. I mean, Mark himself lived in that kind of living in poverty. I mean, his, his family lived in that. They were always constantly in debt uh, because he was not a, a, a bourgeois professor. Uh, he did not want to, you know, teach at these bourgeois universities. He tried to be a journalist at the time. Uh, made a lot of money. Being, he made some money being a journalist, and, and also depended upon Ingalls uh, to help as well. But he he clearly understood that this property class, the people who were in that, that class who owned stuff, right, had a certain power over those who didn't own. And this is still exists today. That's the reason why Trump is such a classic example of capitalism. Because he's a fucking what do you be a realtor? I mean, he's he's made money off of of, of throwing property, you know, and and building shit, right, and and charging people to to stay in those properties. This is the kind of relationship that we built. This is the kind of of society that we have, and and it's not going to get any better. It's it's going to get worse, right? Even though you may, just because you have a TV and an icebox and I mean, a refrigerator, say an icebox, a refrigerator. (laughs) Old school. Just clothing. (laughs) I know that's real old school. (laughs) <laughs> but just because we have all these things, right, doesn't mean that it's coming, again, coming at a price, and it's coming more so at an environmental price, right? Because I contend that the notion of humanity, man, people, we really have lost our humanity for one another. We really have. We've done that uh, for various reasons, but we are losing our sense of humanity. So if, we, if you can't, if, you know, if you can't, like, get your head around that, because you don't give a fuck about other people uh, besides maybe yourself and maybe your family. Some people don't even, give, give, don't even care about their family. But if, if, you, if you can't get with that, at least look at it in terms of, look, if we continue the way that we're going, we're not going to last and from an environmental part, point of view. Now, the, the, the nature is going to keep going, but it's going to keep going without us. Um, I, we have a call. I'm going to let that call in in about uh, 10, more, 10 more minutes. It's a 909 uh, phone uh, 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 area code. So, if uh, whoever that is, let them in. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, I. I, I oh, that's I, a jam. Th- yeah, that's a jam. You probably want to let him in. Um, yeah, I'll let him in. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Carl. Oh, so um, the just moving right along uh, on that same piece. Um, also in that chapter, uh, you know, Marx talks about the um, the, the proletariat, and he talks. About he both talks about the proletariat, the middle class, and the lumped-in proletariat. Um, um, he, he spends more time on the um, the proletariat, and he talks of, in terms of their different distinction in terms of what he calls manual labor, or the labor, and the proletariat. Um, when he speaks of the proletariat, he says the less the skill, the exertion of strength implied in manual labor, in other words, the more modern industry becomes developed. The more is the labor of the men superseded by that of the women. Difference of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All the instruments of labor more or less expenses to use according to their age and sex. So it, it, that, it, that, there's a couple of things that he's trying to describe there in terms of manual labor. Even Remember, this is the early period of industrial capitalism. In the, end, in the early period of industrial capitalism, um, they were looking for people who are not um, uh, intellectuals um, nor artisans. They wanted people who were basically peasants, who had no, uh, who were uneducated, uh, had no particular skills. You can go in and just turn a net, and that's it. And and constantly, you know, turn a net or lift up this 
bumper and put it up there um, and do that, you know, uh, 150 times a day or 1,000 times a day. Um, they also, uh, during the early periods, they had a lot of women and young kids doing a lot of this work. What is interesting is um, as a result of unionization and a number of other regulative, uh, regulated capitalism, uh, men begin to dominate most of the industrial um, labor work, and women um, were were no longer able to work in in the industry, um, uh, and only in certain industries like garment industry. When they did, they received less pay, um, and and young people even received even lesser pay until unions came along in terms of establishing minimum wage and um, saying that um, young kids cannot. Uh, be uh, at work, but it should be in school. Um, all of that has changed, but not all of it has changed. We're coming back around now, where a vast majority of women are also in the workforce. Um, also, um, um, we also have men in the workforce. We also have young people in the workforce. We have a lot of people in the workforce, and everybody has to work and have to work uh, many different hours a day. He also talks about that the proletariat goes through various stages of development. And, and what he means that is that you have one, on one hand you're a worker, you go to work and you do your you you do your job. You're not conscious of the fact that you actually, you know, a part of the working class that you uh, control. You know that you can uh, uh, change things. That that, that the, it wasn't always this way. And so it says with this birth begins a struggle with the bourgeoisie and. And it does that at the work site, but it also could do it in the neighborhood. It could do it in the street to become conscious of not only uh, 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 about itself, but begin to become conscious for itself. And, and, and what I mean by that is that it begins to, to challenge every aspect. Um, and during the early period, they used to just smash machines, set factories afire, and, you know, just destroy stuff. Anarchists do that today. But um, during the early stages of frustration, anger, that's usually just lashing out to, of the, the the oppression and the exploitation, the extreme form of exploitations that you go through, that, that you do those things. Today, they do more subtle forms of that. Um, but that's your first initial reaction. But as you learn, you become educated, wait, wait, become Carl, me, engaged Carl, in struggle. Carl, let me point out one thing, though, right, right before you move. That uh-huh. You talked about union. The, the, yeah. the notion of unions, I want people, I want to remind people about the unions, particularly younger people, is that listen, oh, yeah. unions are that first step, or that you know that first step to, in other words, the working class beginning to understand, try to protect its own particular interests, right? Because now, see, a lot of days now, people are like, well, I don't want to join a union because it takes more money out of my paycheck. That's all the fuck they think about, right? And and so it's like to me, really, I don't want to pay no fucking union dues, right? But you don't understand. <laughs> That if you don't, have, I mean, seriously, you got you got to be clear. If you don't have some organizational apparatus in order to protect your interests, then you are even more so beholden to capital, the, uh, the, 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 the the corporation or the industry or whoever you're working for. You're even more so beholden to that because you don't have anything to protect. Um, uh, 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 you don't have you don't have no laws. You don't have any kind of organization that's going to work on your behalf. So they can fire you at will. They cannot give you medical care. And this is the reason why your libertarians are so much, you know, like they don't want to, they're, 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 like, they're saying like people should be able to, like what they call the right to work. 
They call the they call it the juvenile the right to work movement, which it confuses people. Yes, we have we should have a right to work, but what they're saying is you should have a right to work without union. Okay? Well, what kind of fucked up shit is that? Uh, yeah, I should have a right to work without having somebody to protect, you know, my my working class interests. So that means that you can work for a company for twenty some odd years and all of a sudden if you ain't got no fucking union, they're like, uh, we gotta let you go. We we finna modernize, we finna we finna uh, automate so you gotta go. Now you've already you've already given your life over. You give them twenty years, even if it's five years. I don't give a fuck what it is. If you give them five years, you've made them money, but they can say, well, um, you gotta go. We don't need you anymore. And there's nothing there to protect you, right? And and if, and if some libertarian and some crash capitalist would say, well, look, you should be able to work. We should be we should be able to have people uh, uh, sell their labor. That's what you're doing. We all do it. Sell our labor. For as little as we can get, or as much as we can get, if 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 your if your labor and your skills not that much in demand, fuck, you should be you should have to work for twelve twelve and fifty cents an hour. Get the fuck, right? Matter of fact, we should be able to enslave you, right? If you don't have anything really to bring to the table, if you don't really have any hardline skills that we need, we should be able to enslave you because we're better than you. And this 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 outlook is 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 this outlook is is around today today. If they have their way with it, a uh, Paul Ryan, uh, what's his, uh, you know, uh, what's his Paul Ryan? What is he? The uh, what's his position in the, um, um, you know, Paul Ryan, right? Yeah, Paul Ryan, this, head this, of the uh, House of Representatives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, this, this this kind of motherfucker would he would he would be okay with that? He would be absolutely right. okay with that. If, oh, you if, mean if um, you don't have certain skills, if if you huh? You mean uh, Ron Paul or? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, too, yeah, they're all libertarians. They are. They're yeah, very li- Ron Paul and so, so and, and, and what's his Rand Paul, his son. Yeah, yeah. right. And so yeah. if you don't have certain skills, listen. If you don't have certain skills, right? You know that that's your problem. That's your fault. We should be able to benefit from your labor. And if we don't need your labor, well, whatever, whatever happens, happens to you. You know, it's not a problem. I mean, if we don't need you. Get out of here. And so this mentality exists then, back then this done the document, and it certainly exists and on the rise even to this day. And, and okay. one of the things, that, one of the things about this document is, says, remember, I started out the first level of proletariat uh, thinking was, you know, just destruction, just being mad. The second is understanding to be a part of the union, and and what Pakari described. That's the second level, understanding that you're part of the working class and you're going to band together. The third is the really thinking not only the class but a, but but a class not only just to def, you know defend your rights or have a protection but to begin to p- create a organization of the proletariat into a class. Consequently he says consequently into a political party. And it is continue being upset again by the competition between workers themselves that's the divide and conquer tactic. But it Ever rises up again stronger and firmer and mighty, it compels legislative recognition of a particular interest of worker. And by taking advantage of the division among the bourgeoisie itself, it begins to say we begin to create our own political party, working class party, not the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not the working class party. The Democratic Party, clear, that's the, the liberal wing of the bourgeoisie. The true genuine um, working class party is funded by the working class has a clear position about the working and has no damn interest in about Wall Street. 
And so if any interested in trying to protect them and help them out, it's clearly about protecting and, and working in the interest as a broader working class. And that political party begins to, th- begins to recognize fundamentally that there's fundamentally wrong, something wrong with the nature of capitalism in of itself and that it needs to be overthrown. Yeah, and, and, and notice, people, we don't have no working class representatives in Congress. Most people, most people, most people, most people in Congress are either lawyer, former, either former lawyers, right? They are business business people, right? And they're just straight up politicians. Now they may come from working class families. I mean, I'm pretty. Bernie Sanders came from a working class, a serious working class family. But they, you don't have the uh, AFL-CIO or some other kind of union having a place at the table. In our government, and in any, in any of the political parties, they may have some some lobbyists there, maybe try to influence policy, but they're not there. The same way you don't have scientists, or you don't really have environmentalists that are part of our government. They're they're not a part of that being able to make the, the decision making process. You're voting for people who are protectors of the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie class, and many of them, almost I think almost every. Congressperson, right, is a millionaire. I mean, and millionaire plus, right? And ain't none of them, like, you know, living like you live. Uh, John, are you on there? Yeah, I want to, this is where I want to jump in at uh, a real, yeah, a real ahead, quick, because you hit up on a, a topic that I'm dealing with right now. One, let's go back to the right to work. Unions across the country are preparing for the Supreme Court decision that will be handed down on June the 18th, 2018. There's a Supreme Court case called Janet versus Aspie. And in the core of the case, the plaintiff is saying that I don't want to be a part of a union and I shouldn't be forced to pay union dues. The plaintiff is, is, a, is a state worker from the state of Illinois, and she applied for the job, and the plaintiff got the job, however, the precondition to that particular job state that you are required to join a union because it's a union shop. She's saying that to be required to join a union violates her First Amendment right, which is, as we know, the right to freedom of association, and also, too, is you have a right to not associate. That's a, that case has made it now to the Supreme Court. Now, just last year, there was a similar case that came out of California that was scheduled to be heard by, by the Supreme Court, but Justice Scalia passed away. That case was called Friedrichs versus CTA. And in that, Friedrichs, the teacher in Orange County, argued the same thing. However, that case was, when that case was put on the back burner, and now that gave, that gave all unions uh, some breathing room to prepare for what's coming down the road. However, this case now has arrived to the Supreme Court. The reason Obama was trying, the union was forced, and they, that was a big push to get that Supreme Court, to get him to point a Supreme Court justice, because uh, unions knew that once the reactionaries came in, notice I said reactionaries assume uh, uh, both houses of Congress, that they'd be in a position to appoint who they want to be sitting on the Supreme Court, to which they did. They just appointed uh, uh, Neil Gersuch. If you look, if you read his records, history, he was the final. He had decided on the on the on the, on the federal level, the uh, the district court there, on a Hobby Lobby case, which basically gave the employer to right to discriminate against women. 
he has ruled in favor of, he had rules in favor of a lot of uh, uh, corporations and big business. He is now on the Supreme Court. This case now will be heard across the, and it's, and it has to do with if it, and the uh, the organization that's providing legal representation for the plaintiff is the right to work organization. That's the name of the organization. That organization right. is also being funded by the Koch brothers. Now, exactly. once this case is heard, it will pass. It's that's it, that's for Sunderland Grotto right there. It will pass. What that will say, it will then begin to change relationships between management and labor. So that relationship that management and labor had established in the New Deal era has has now been officially torn asunder. What our union is doing nationally now is that our union has already projected that 30% of our national budget will go. And we also, too, we would, and we would, and some unions that first year will not make it. Some unions will go to where the dinosaur. So the point of this legislation, and Donald Trump made it clear, is to kill unions. Now, what we have, I just spoke up in, I, I just spoke, I've been traveling throughout Southern California speaking to a lot of state workers around this whole topic of right to work. And so I'm now putting forth a real, as much as I can, a real Marxist critique of, of capitalism, the work, uh, the work environment, and the role of unions, okay? This is what is taking place right now. Now, FDU, and one thing I'm making known to a lot of state workers is that the U.S. economy has changed. Forty percent of what uh, – uh, 60% of the U.S. economy doesn't make anything. Production, for the most part, has moved exactly. offshore into more labor-intensive countries. Notice our union is called SEIU. Most of the U.S. economy is service-related. And that's exactly. what people now so I'm, Now, what I'm doing is drawing graphs, and I have pulled down a graph from the Department of, U.S. Department of Labor Statistics showing where, where wages have flatlined but on average, and the production of the production of U.S. workers is steadily going up, and I'm sure the difference between what you've been paid and what you make, meaning you take your labor power, your brains, your muscle, to produce either a good or a service. That which you don't get paid for, the employer keeps. So I go through that whole process, and people now are very engaged when I give the talk. But now I've been able to get people to to understand the value of collective bargaining, workers coming together collectively to pursue and fight for their own interests. I also, too, break down what right to work means, which is right to work for cheap or for nothing. And people are getting, however, in California now, California now, the right to work people are already here in California. They will be setting up shop outside of the, the, uh, the, the stores, getting people to sign up. And I'm telling people, beware of this coming. They're here. And they will have you, will tell you, you have a right to work. And they will give you all this benign, harmless language. But behind that is a right for you to cut your own throat. And that's what, that's what we, that's what's going on right now. Now, also, too, that is happening. So that's going to change. Now, the point where I'm asking state workers is that now, what are you willing to do to fight for a better future for yourself and for your prosperity, because this is what's taking place. And I go through this whole history of union struggles, and Frederick Douglass is real clear when he said it back in the 1800s, and it's true now, about power and progress, okay? 
And so I'm, I'm so that's what I'm going with, and I'm glad you got to talk about this. That's what I wanted to get on to talk about. Because see, this is something now that allow us marchers to get into the game and really begin to prevent. And what I'm doing is to call for a new social narrative. And I'm also too, I'm moving beyond that type of uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, 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 Keynesian definition of socialism. I'm redefining it. So I'm hoping that that's what I want to talk to you guys about. That's why I want to hear, because I haven't read the Common Manifesto in a while, so I'm having so listen to you guys just bring it. Okay, now I'm, I'm back at it again. You know what I mean? Now, right. I sent Carl a video just last night, and I'll send it to you, Bakar, as well. This is another development that's working, too. In the California, and Carl, you and I talked about this a few days ago. I did develop a question, and the question was presented on a, 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 a questionnaire. Both candidates will get this question. And, Bakar, I'm going to bring you up to speed. What's taking place in California is that California, the, the California Democratic Party, is having a, a, a race for who will be the chair of the California Democratic Party. Now, Bakara, so you know the California Democratic Party is the largest uh, state party in the country and the most influential in the country, okay? California is mm-hmm. the sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, we, the Californians send more tax dollars to D.C. than any country, than any state. Uh, California technically can exist Without the rest of the United States, California have access to the Pacific Ocean ports. The major ports in the world is in L.A. and in, in Alameda. California has a San Joaquin Valley. That's basically the food basket of the world. Uh, also, too, California has the cultural art mecca of the world, which is Hollywood, both in terms of, in terms of movies and music. So in terms of a country, California's economy is bigger than, is bigger than in Canada. So Donald Trump has his eyes geared at California because if you can take down the sixth largest economy in the world and make those workers submit to a capitalist onslaught, then the rest of the country will fall apart. And here's something that you guys need, need to be aware of. The workers in Wisconsin now have lost basically all their rights. The state workers there right. had, a, had a state, had their contract was normally 355 pages long. Let me, bring, let, me, let me say this. That now since Scott Walker had decimated the, uh, the, state, the state workers there in the, in the unions, the union, state union there, they're working. Their contract now is only five pages long. So it went from 355 pages now to five pages. That right there is mm-hmm. most of all what they don't have. This is where the state right. of workers are. Now, secondly, the, US, the, the height of the labor movement, the height of the of the unionization in this country is at 35 percent. Now, the height of the the, the 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 American workforce is probably 11 percent of that unionized, and most of that of that 11 percent are state or public sector workers. California, my union, which is SEIU Local 1000, we are the largest union public sector union in the state of California. We are 95,000 members. We are the second largest uh, public sector union in the country, outside of New York. So he is geared at California. They're here getting ready to distribute and confuse workers about the right to work for less. So I'm having to go, so I'm having to go back to members and now begin to explain to members why there's value in being a collective organization. Now, one thing, I had a meeting, and I decided they, they agreed with me having a cultural arts film night. The films that I have shown so far uh, have been, and I've got a lot of participation, and this is where black folks, I need. 
and I got to deal with the bourgeois element of the black community. Cause see, and so in the, in the, in, in Carl, we were talking about this back in the day that, as you know, the civil rights movement and uh, uh, was hijacked by the bourgeois, the black bourgeoisie, and we cannot separate civil rights from labor and labor from civil rights. And so what I'm doing right now is making it clear before you get because to associate Dr. King to labor. And that whole idea when 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 uh, Rosa Parks sat down, she didn't call Dr. King when she needed to get out of jail. She called Edie Nixon, who was the secretary of Aphila Randolph, who Aphila Randolph was an organizer for labor. You get where I'm going here, right? So I'm, going, right. I'm taking people, particularly black state workers, and particularly women, because 73% of our local is women. So now I'm having to redirect how unions have some of the first labor organizer with women because women were the first to be exploited in the factories in upper in in in, uh, in, in uh, Massachusetts. So I'm trying to make the connection between uh, and what is called that intersectionality between gender, race, and class. Now, uh, opening has occurred for me to really engage in that type of talk because here's the reality: whether we do it or not, work in this country is about ready to get set back. They've already get exactly. set back 35 years. Let's say if they're not up, this is in so words. You can't be in the middle of the road on this shit, on this shit about to come down right now. It's either Joe Hill was right. It's either who which side are you on now? It's exactly. well, and, and, wake and, up time. It's no and, and time for just now. Jama, this shit's been changed the game. Yeah, go right ahead, Bakari. Yeah, Jama, it's, it's, it's been like that, particularly since the 1970s. I mean, wages have been stagnant. And and I want to yeah. remind the the, uh, the the listeners. Listen, we have we're we're talking about Communist Manifesto as this pamphlet, but we've got to talk about it in the light of what's happening today as well. Because so you 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 can study this text as like you know from a scholastic point of view, like you know you're in you're in a class, you're going to study what's it all about, mm-hmm. what's the summary. But that's not going to do you any good unless you put it into one the, the context yep. in which it was written, but also how does it relate to this to, to the day? Now we only made it to about page seven or eight. Okay, I mean we ain't even top heavy into this into this pamphlet, but that's the reason why, like like Ajamo was saying, listen, we got to be woke because we, the, the working class in this country have already been hit. They already been hit extremely hard. That's the reason why you had some of these uh, white working class so upset because they're getting hit as well, but they don't see themselves as working class. They see themselves as white folks. Okay, that's the fucking problem. They see that their their interest is tied up with uh, uh, Trump's interest. They think that Trump is what that, that, that the interest that Trump has is the same interest they have. No, it ain't. That's not what it is. He didn't he didn't Trump didn't put nobody from, from the unions on his cabinet. He put billionaires on his fucking cabinet. He's taking care yeah. of his interest and the interest of his class. What we got to do, working class, what, what what are we doing? We got four minutes left. Three minutes left now. Go ahead. What? Let me say this now. Reverend, Reverend Barbara uh, spoke to SEIU, and I heard his, I heard his, his talk. I lo- a lot of it tomorrow, Monday, and he's coming out of that Dr. King in terms of, and I get it. I, I, and I have often told a lot of folks, I need for you to reread uh, where do we go from here in Chaos Our Community, because Dr. Yeah. King yeah. was right in, term, in terms of being able to communicate 
and all uh, communicate to to a uh, to a working class that that's being subjected to race and gender ideology, and given the long history of his country, he's having to communicate with people on their base level, which is a morality discussion. I understand that, but now I was going to send a t- uh, attack a, a message to Reverend Barber that I agree, but Reverend Barber now has to go beyond, has to be, be much more left than that, because Reverend Barber said that. We also have to support uh, uh, AC, uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act, and then go to Singapore. And I'm saying, well, no, we don't. That's no. And mm-hmm. secondly, Reverend Barber said we have to move away from that left and right uh, 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 analysis because that came out of Europe. True, it did come out of Europe. But let's put it in perspective. I understand what ref he's trying to go because he's trying to remove the tags from left to right to engage people to see a common class interest. I understand that. But being a person, a lefty, and understanding history of left and right, I can't take left and right out of the dialogue. So that's another right. thing that we got to struggle with. But I do appreciate what Reverend, what Reverend Barber is doing because he is bringing that intersectionality between race, gender, and class into the forefront, and he's redefining evangelicalism uh, uh, and so on. And I appreciate that as well, too. And I'm glad he's doing it, which, again, allowed those of us on the left for opening to get into the dialogue and even redefine that whole process. Now, Reverend Barber has a respect for the U.S. United States Constitution. Well, I don't. It is. It's a, it's a bourgeois document, and uh, I won't go through that, but y'all know the history of that. I got it. I understand that, too. Okay? But we have to be able now, us lefties have to get into the dialogue and redefine all that. So, what I like what he's doing, which is something that, that Carl is pretty good at, and I learned from Carl, is that we have to begin to take topics and terms and redefine them. Because whoever established the dictate the term of the definition, that will dictate whose reality people will see reality from. You get what I'm saying? Right. So hey, I'll hey, right I'm you look, man. Look. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to. We have to bring it to a close. Call back next week. Man, we unpacking. We got a lot of stuff on that. A lot of that. people. We're gonna. We're gonna come back to this, and and uh, we're gonna we'll keep working through the through the pamphlet, but also work through it from the context of what's going on today as well. Because this is a lens. We're talking about that lens. We're talking about and how we want to yeah. see change. So, uh, so definitely, uh, those you know, if you haven't read the, the manifesto. Uh, please do. I think you will be able to appreciate the, con- the conversation even more so if you have, you know, at least tried to read it. If you, can, if, you, if you can only do like the first section, that would be great. Uh, it's a little bit, I know parts of it a little bit dry, but, but clearly when you start putting it in the context of what's going on today, then you can see how relevant it is. That's the reason why we're focusing on it, okay? So really appreciate it. I know that uh, Brother Naj, you online right now. I couldn't, couldn't let you in because you're running out of time. Really appreciate the people on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter. You can also find us on iTunes. Download us from there. Please re, um, share this link, and let's get this conversation going even more so. We much, we really, really need it. Thanks a lot, John, for coming on. Thanks, Carl. appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, my brothers. All right, peace. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.